This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to another edition of Big Chris Live, the live stream, and then the podcast. You can see Ashley McIsaac on the screen behind me, and uh, super excited for this episode, and we'll get into all the backstory and the reasons why. Obviously, the Celtic music genre, I play the bagpipes. We've talked a lot about that on this podcast, but we're finally going to get into the jig and real idiom maybe at some point. I don't know how deep we're going to go, but uh, just uh, don't forget to subscribe via audio after the fact available in Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And of course, our podcast network sponsor, DeanBlundell.com. And we're streaming light right now via DeanBlundell.com's Twitter, also their YouTube and on the Big Chris Radio Facebook fan page. Ashley, good afternoon. Oh, you're all masked up now. Did you just call me a jig and real idiot? No, <laughs> idiom, idiom. Oh, oh, idiom. Sorry, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't distinguish what people say now when I don't have my mask on. Everything's uh, come on. Like, everything's all muffled now. You know, it's that's one of the weird things about masks is actually you're at least for me, my peripheral vision changes. It's weird because it doesn't cover your eyes. Yeah. But when you have this little area here. Uh, this close, a black line or, you know, blue line, whatever color mask you're wearing. Mm-hmm. If I like if I'm getting out of my truck or something and I go to look, often sometimes I have to be, I have to look twice because I have, I have stage eyes, you know. I have the eyes of a, of being on a stage and knowing if I, if, if I move one inch too far to the left, I might fall off when mm-hmm. I'm doing type thing. So I have very directional vision. And, and so, yeah, mask, this whole new thing, everything is weird. And so I guess I misheard you. I thought you said it was a jig and real idiot, but it's the idiom you were talking idiom, about. Idiom, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Ashley, uh, I have the same problem with the way the mask fits my face. I've got a very fat face. And so often I find the mask is riding up into my eyeballs. And when I look in the mirror, it doesn't look like it's in my eye, but it feels like it's in my eye. That's the problem I get with the masks. Do you ever have friends or family try and dress you up at uh, Easter as an egg? <laughs> no, not no, not not uh, not this year. However, now that you've suggested it, I'm sure someone's going to want to have their way right? with this thing Perfect. up here. <laughs> Perfect. I'm just looking here and seeing you. I'm going. You could paint that like a Fabergé. It'd be so cool. Yeah. Well, we're we're having a baby this Easter, so my birthday is actually Congrats. my birthday's Congrats. on Good Friday. I'm turning forty on Good Friday, and then uh, on the 11th of April is our due date for our baby daughter. And uh, we can. there's a little bit of a drama that I'm going to get your advice on a little later on in the podcast as well. I'm going to bounce some ideas off of you. But first, I wanted to ask you, do you ever get sick of people just randomly walking up to you and saying, hi, how are you today? Do you get tired of that? No, not at all. And you know what? Not so many people do, to be honest. Really? Uh, I, I've been very fortunate in one sense. Uh, in Canada, when you have any type of 
uh, notoriety or, or fame or celebrity, you're not always that recognizable. Um, unless you've been a, a superstar around the world, like an American celebrity may be, um, I think it would be very hard for Mick Jagger to walk into a club and not get noticed. For sure. But even when I had the most press and media going around about me, and it's been 25, 26 years since those really beginning stages, but I've continued to maintain uh, some type of press and, and media around my name and image. It just never was the case. And it makes me think about one time I was doing a show at, uh, I think it was Massey Hall. And, you know, I'm inside Massey Hall, sold out audience, standing ovations. I walked out after the show was finished from the upstairs on this long staircase, the fire stairs that goes down to the side of the building yeah. to walk downstairs to have a smoke. And at that point, that's where everybody's coming from the show afterwards, walking down that street. And as I was walking down, there was a man and woman, you know, fairly well-dressed man, young, 40s, and very stylish lady. And uh, they were just chatting, and he said something, and, and he coughed, and he hawkered, and he just sort of looked towards me, and he just went, and spit on the on ground and kept going. Because typically, I go somewhere, I look oh, like, yeah. you know, <laughs> I'm the homeless guy on the street. And so on a stage... You know, they're applauding and it's wonderful and we're supposed to and it's Ashley and we paid $67.50 and outside, yeah, people don't recognize me. So I don't really have huh. that issue. Um, and unless I have a pair of sunglasses on and a fiddle in my hand, uh, you know, it, it doesn't happen very often. Well, then let me ask you. Hi, how are you today, Ashley? How are things? Well, the normal response for me to that question when I have been asked is fine, thank you very much, which was the follow-up record to that that I put out uh, about two years after that Hi, How Are You Today record. Right. But I'll answer you directly. We are talking now on your podcast because it's a, a time where people are meeting this way through Zoom phone calls and uh, because artists haven't been publicly out there very much. There's been a very small amount of media attention around uh, what has happened with the industry and the part of the industry that I'm in. And I think that's rightful because always in the past, uh, in many countries, ours included, arts have been considered uh, non-essential. Mm -hmm. So if you consider certain countries like, uh, let's say, Russia during World War II, they kept the Bolshoi theater going while the bombs were dropping. They, uh, they understood the importance that art is to their culture. And cultures that have done that have lasted the longest. Canada respects its culture, but it's never been front and, and foremost when it comes to uh, how to tell our own story, other than maybe through the CBC, which eventually had gone through its own phases of, you know, purchasing episodes of Wheel of Fortune like the rest of the world. So <laughs> the, the, the generality of art being non-essential has meant that people haven't talked so much about it. And to answer your question... Hi, how are you today? It's fucking shit. How about that? <laughs> you know, you're not alone. You're not alone. Right? The reality of it is, and that's why I'm not doing much press, probably because I couldn't control myself. I, I've stopped myself for months of speaking where I don't just blow up and say crap uh, about crap because there are real problems that people are dealing with. People are dying. People are getting sick. People are being forced to stay in their home because they have cancer and they can't go out because of their uh, compromised immune systems. There are real problems. But in reality, the sector that I'm part of, the arts sector, 
that includes, uh, you know, venues, technicians, uh, people on the stage. I, I, I make my living off as a live touring artist. I have for many, many years. Yep. And like most artists, I'm not a business person. I'm an artist. I play music. I grew up in the woods playing the fiddle in Cape Breton, managed to uh, take the leap and, and was lucky to have that successful record. And I've for now 25 years made a living off it. It doesn't mean that I'm a smart business person. So I don't have a bank roll of money sitting uh, in my bank. What I've done instead is when I get money, I live and I continue to go on to the next show and then put whatever extra money I have into my next project. So when you do that and all of a sudden you're faced with a scenario like we are now, which has been 11 months, 12 months, going to be 13, 14, 15, 16. On and on and on. Just dragging. With less than, you know, 5% of my, of my normal yearly income. Uh, the agency I work for, they, uh, they had to lay off 95% of their agents because there wasn't live shows. Yeah. So many venues that, uh, I had booked last year on the very first day, March 11th, when you know everything got called. All gigs were canceled. I maintained one show last year. Um, my mom, my mom was at your show last year, by the way, in the Al- one, which, in Almont, Ontario, last no, summer. That, no, I didn't do a show in Almont last. Did you not? Summer. Was no, it the summer before? Maybe. That was two years ago. All right. Okay. She was there. Right. So <laughs> last year, the only show I did do was uh, a Celtic Colors event out of Cape Breton, which right. I had to fly to Nova Scotia. Actually, I drove to Nova Scotia. So it took a day and a half. And then I had to isolate for 14 days. Oh, yeah. And and then I had two days of rehearsals. And then I had to drive back. So it basically took me 18 days to do one show. And there couldn't be a public audience for it at the time. So I haven't done any real things like that other than by december i went online and and opened up a personal facebook account to try and shill fiddle tunes where i would sit and you know take my pen out um take a piece of paper and write out a tune invent a tune and perform it for people and you know doing that for 100 bucks a pop because you know that's you can't really charge more than that so the reality is to your question and i i said a vulgar response <laughs> it's not a good time it's not a good time. yeah and and to give people the background too i mean even leading up before the pandemic there's also been a massive change in how the record industry works right i mean there there used to be album sales uh, you know, well, and, there, and then there is that. that that's that's an, an old story at this point, though, now, because yeah. we're talking around 2005, basically post Napster, when iTunes and such was invented, that uh, it, it became obvious, you know, certain large acts like Metallica protested in the beginning yeah, yeah. in the South Park episode, you know, but the, the reality is, is that by that point, I basically decided that any record I made that cost a lot and was a full production, I'm not a, a Madonna putting out a record. I like to say I'm not a big celebrity. So anything I put out, uh, the chances that it hits big means that you have to have uh, 50 million streams to make any money. And yeah. th- that's very small chances. It's like when lightning strikes. It struck for me with Hi, How Are You Today? But I basically make albums now as an advertisement for the music that I'm touring and what I'm going to put out next. Yeah. So, you know, I, I might spend $50,000 that I've managed to finagle up to make a record, but I don't necessarily expect to make 5,000 back off of yeah. 0.001 cents per stream. Well, and that's, and that's sort of the point I was getting at is that all, all musicians had left was the tour was the live show. 
and and that because the albums were taken out from underneath, the album sales stopped becoming a thing because of streaming, and now the pandemic, it's just one thing after another after another, man. And uh, so, well, you know, we can't we can't complain about technological advancements. That's and true. I won't. That's true. I won't. Right. I mean, this is the reason that we're here, able to talk to each other. So, and I also never have a problem with the notion that music is something that people love. Now, me, I'm an artist who has been clear and said for many years, I do this for my living. That's what I do. Done it. I decided when, you know, I was, I could have been valedictorian. I dropped out the last month of school. I, I joined a band. I knew I was good at music. I seen how much money I could make at that point, And I took a, a chance at it. And so I'm not going to complain about the fact that I've managed to uh, eke out a really good career. But you're right. For people who are just starting out right now, very hard. Uh, you know, that one hit wonder thing of having something go viral. It is very rare. You know, if you hop on a skateboard and drink some cranberry juice, maybe you get a free truck. But, <laughs> but there's a lot of great there's a lot of great artists. You got out me there. Man. That's good. Well, there's a lot of great artists out there yeah. who play very great. <laughs> but the only way that they could continue to hone their craft was by performing those small cafes and clubs yeah. now some of them are starting to open and in fact i may have uh, a few gigs next month i'm told i can do 50 seat venues in a certain part of ontario i may go out and do a solo show doing it solo um there's just maybe enough money for me to consider going out and doing it when i pay my agent my manager and my costs etc Otherwise, not enough money to pay a side musician. So I've offered a, a show where I'm going to tell stories about my experiences with UFOs, ghosts, and sea monsters, <laughs> and and play solo fiddle. Something interesting for people to come out of their house, but very small. So that ability to be in front of a live audience, first off, I do miss this, but knowing, as I said, it's not a, an industry that's considered essential, even though... When prime ministers are elected, they sit back into their home and they put a glass of wine and a record on of, uh, you know, Faith Hill and, and listen to their music and, and go, OK, everything's wonderful in life and I'm fabulous. They, and I'm going to make a decision now about whether or not I'm going to cut a 150 million or 160 million from this budget. People don't seem to understand how relevant their happiness is, even though they know it. So there's been a lot of. Uh, great comments from people online saying, you know, that music is so important. We have to support our artists, we have to support our artists. But the very exact same people also have to think, like I said, which is, but don't go out there anywhere and don't go to any concerts and don't do anything. And please yeah. stay home because people are sick. Okay, I get it. So we are we are a, a, a necessary evil almost at that point for people. And the way that they can get it for free online makes it, uh, next to impossible to monetize it in any true sense of the word, and myself, I don't, I don't go by the the notion that artists should be asking for donations. To me, that is yeah. that is a, a pandering that is, in the sense, making us charity cases and beggars. And I had stated it from the get go when I went onto Facebook in the beginning of this year. I don't want donations. If I have something to sell you, you can pay me and I'll sell it. It's my business, but I'm not running a charity. I'm not a church. 
If yeah. I want to run a charity, I'll start a charity service. That's not what I'm doing. I'm still hanging on as a musician. So it's been very difficult for someone like me who is very business oriented in one sense and thinking that it's the business I do. In another sense, being an artist, so I don't really care so much about the business side of it. And then in the third sense, dealing with the reality that people can get stuff for free. So just like them, well, I'm going to put on my Android box and not pay for my cable bill. I get it. Yeah. You know, why, why are you going to spend money if you don't have to? So it is a, a harsh time. This is a long answer <laughs> to a question that uh, was, hi, how are you today? Let me finish by saying, rather than with a vulgarity, eh. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's better. That's better than you know what the, the where we we started. We we moved through you know the stages of grief and anger, and now we're on the other side to eh. No, I, that, that's that's for <laughs> that's for your that's for your listener and for your podcast. You, you know, I'm I the blunt the blunt assessment in the beginning is really where I'm at. I get you, man. I get you. Now, uh, are you not you're not you're you're off Facebook on and off Facebook. eh? I have a love hate relationship with it as well. Well. Like I said, you know, I, I used it for for shilling fiddle tunes. And yeah, I like uh, that, though. The one problem is the accessibility. You know, I and many artists do our best to present ourselves in a way that's down to earth and is open because we're putting ourselves online. Our music is part of ourselves. And we then present as friendly and uh, connecting away to us as we can. And of course, with Facebook, you have Messenger. And I'm not so smart. I'm 46. I don't know all this stuff. So when I all of a sudden post something and then all of a sudden there's 700 messages come through to a Messenger and I've just posted, please do not send me messages. I can't help but look at them because I might have, you know, 500 messages with 300 of them being from 75-year-old grandmas who I feel bad when they send a wave oh, not yeah. to at least acknowledge them back. So... Uh, I set it up so that um, it was personal in that way. And occasionally you get wackos. Occasionally you get people that uh, cross the line and then uh, imagine that they have a really strong connection and they're relying on you. So you respond once. And then if you don't respond a second time, I, I've seen this happen in live, though. It's not just an online thing. Yeah, it's, it's an in-person thing, too. It's the obsessive mentality. It's in yeah. It's the person I've been in Alberta and I've played where Maritimers come up to me and I've spent 15 minutes with them talking afterwards and they were drunk at a club and uh, do all I can to be friendly and then say, okay, we got to get in the van. We're leaving to go to the next town. It's, you know, one thirty in the morning and we're leaving at six in the morning. We're, oh, you're too weapon important to talk to us now. Are oh, you? Yeah, People stop just like that because you've been personal with them and and then they get slighted and i don't like that element of the online connection to people is the, the chance they can get slighted more so the chance that they uh are just weird or wacko and come up with imaginary fantasies and and then start believing something which is something in my career i've had to deal with in a media angle because personally having been out as a gay person at a very young age in uh, the 1990s, when there really wasn't anybody else in Canada talking like that, there was a lot of negativity surrounding that from certain angles of press. So yep, throughout my sure career, there was. well, throughout my career, I have the the distinction of probably being the only Canadian artist that doesn't mind because it's part of my career playing the the yellow press version of things with the media because I have to work with them. And so, you know, I can look at Globe and Mail articles that that's you know ask questions and say things that are just extraordinary 
and like really foul. And then I can look at Globe Mail articles that are wonderful about me, you know, in the same breath. So that nature that's around me, I have to be cautious of how interpersonal I am in my conversations. I, I right, am right. very professional, but it being a professional fiddle player from Cape Breton, that means you got to be charming and you have to be down to earth. Well, that's, when you're, that's what it's all about. When you're charming and down to earth, that leaves a problem all of a sudden that people <laughs> all of a sudden can cross a line, right? Yeah. You know, you talk about, uh, you know, you've, you've got, everyone's got different sizes of personality, Ashley, and I've got, I've got a darker sort of sinister side to me that I'm dealing with something in my life right now. I'm going to throw this out to you. So I'm going to make this short story long, but uh, my wife and I have been renting a house here in the GTA uh, for the last four and a half years. And um, we've been renting it. And we're, of course, four or five weeks away from having a baby. And our landlord knows this. They decided because the real estate market has heated up that they're going to sell our house. And right. right now it looks like we're going to have a three or four month or three or four week old child and we're going to have to pack up, pack up and find a new house to live in. Which You better get moving quick. Which doesn't sit well with me because I sat on their doorstep seven weeks ago, well, I, at least seven weeks from the time that they had uh, given us notice that they were going to sell the house and I cut them checks for the whole year. And I said, why didn't you tell me then? Why didn't you tell me in December? I, I wrote you checks for the entire year and... Uh, and uh, and they and they just said it's their right to sell the house, and of course it is their right to sell the house, but I don't well, like I, that they're doing I it. Two I yeah. got two questions for you: Is is there anything in eviction rules that prevent them from evicting people due to COVID? Yes. Well, that was the tricky thing, you see, uh, because we were in lockdown in our region, and there's no evictions during lockdown. They let us know on the first day of not lockdown, the first day of red zone. Right. I know. I'm like, okay, I'm on to your game. I see what's going on here. I would have appreciated a heads up. And so I've, I've got a real surly angle to everything now that's proceeding, like them bringing people through our house now for showings, you know, and who knows what they're dragging in, you know, COVID or whatever. Right. And uh, anyways, today, the real estate agent's coming over with a photographer and, and I, I want to do mean things. Like I want to, ah, no, yeah, no, you wouldn't, listen. you wouldn't. No, no, not okay. at all. No, I'll, I'll tell you. There's something I've learned about uh, when people have their mind set on doing something that they have a legal right to do. Yeah. Which I think probably in your case they may have. They do. Right? Yeah, they're entitled. I just think it's in poor taste given that my wife is so pregnant. There is, there is nothing uh, in the rules book of business that has to do with, uh, you know, all's fair in love and war, right, in business. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. the... The fairness of it is you can do, I think you can do two things. You can stoop to their level and be uh, unfair um, and, and try and make it difficult for them. But what does that gain you and your wife who are already dealing with the, the prospect of having to move and, and yeah. she is having a child. So the, the anger thing, I'll tell you, revenge is a dish best served cold. Yes. So you may not uh, be able to get what you want right now, and you might feel slighted because they are making a move that's very delicate. Uh, again, you got your wife pregnant. You guys are having children. Your real estate true. agent didn't. That's true. So it's really not their problem. Now, that being said, they are creating a problem for you because you are in a scenario where you didn't expect you'd have to move. So if it was me, I would wait 
I would use the power of the media that you have and, and mm-hmm. the ability to speak to people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would I would be schmarmy about it. Mm-hmm. Vulgarity, and I've tried. At certain points, I've tried to lash out to people who are completely, uh, what's the word for it? I want to say maniacal, but, you know. I like that word. Self-absorbed people who don't care about what their actions are that affect other people. Sort of psychopaths, right? Mm-hmm. Um when, when psychopaths are involved in my life, and I've had to deal with it a lot. First off, I'm in the entertainment industry, so a lot of people in the business Check one. Are, fairly, yeah. are fairly psychopathic. Yep. You know, I'm driving my Jaguar to work. I don't care if we owe you money. Um, you've done the work, but we're not paying you. Have a nice day, asshole. That type of vibe of people. Yep. So when when I've dealt with people like that in, in, a, in a manner of, okay, I'm going to show them what a Kate Brecker can be like. <laughs> Okay, I'm now at your office with a chainsaw. When 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 I get that vibe, you're speaking to me now, Ashley. You're speaking to me I, now. <laughs> when I get that vibe, I don't often find that the end result is not what I want. It's because yeah. it may I may get the end result I want, but the process yeah. and the action to get to that is one that leaves me as a human being feeling like I stoop to the level of these piss ants. Right, right. I should, you're right. You know, and so a smart person, I think, said the idea, like I said, revenge is a a dish best served cold. So when it comes to it, I'm sure there may be three people in the future from your actions that have done uh, you well by choosing not to go crazy on it and to just profess what you feel about this realtor or whomever it is, the buyer, you know, may, the buyer is the, the seller is the seller. But let's say you, you go, when George Bush went into war in Iraq, he wasn't going there because of what happened with the people over in Afghanistan right. in 911. Yeah. It was the, you know what? You didn't hit me, but you're a cousin of the person who hit me, so I'm going to punch you to really piss off your cousin. So, I mean, it's a real nasty way to do things, but that's maybe how you have to look at it. Maybe this real estate uh, company that's going to be a part of this sale, you prevent three sales for them in the future that they otherwise would have had. I now, see. you know that that's going to affect somebody else's in a scenario where they're trying to sell things. So it's it's continuing a negative thing. My best advice is try and bite your tongue. If you can find a, a new place to live in this horrific time to try and find a place while you have something that's set up that's perfect, that you like, your home, and you're being sold from underneath you, great. If not, you just got to suck it up, buttercup. All right, buddy. All right, all right. But I did want to serenade the photographer with my bagpipes today. I did. I want- well, that, that, that's not... I, I hate that people think that's annoying. My God, I love it. I used to have a bagpiper who I would make sure that at 6 a.m. in the morning, he'd get up and he'd play outside the hotel room to wake everybody up. Because <laughs> there's nothing I love more than bagpipes in the morning. Yeah, I, I wake up, I brush my teeth to bagpipes in the morning. Of course, I play them all the time. It's a good idea, though. But, you know, if you are going to play bagpipes for them, make sure if you have a little speaker set up that you can mic them so they get louder. Oh, good. Yeah, we can definitely always find ways to make them loud, <laughs> louder. <laughs> good good luck to you and your wife on, on your thank newborn you, Thank coming. you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I hope that you solve your scenario with your housing situation. I can tell you some of my housing situations I've dealt with over the years. I was burnt out of one home by the locals that included 
the local councilor, the uh, person who eventually bought the land who I didn't know who had likely paid off the person who set fire, who was my caretaker. No. Um, right up to the the the, the county uh, officials who then suggested they would spend up to $3 million in legal fees to prevent me from getting back my home that was then obviously a proceed of crime to these people who got the grant that had applied for the grant before my house burnt down oh and had hired architecture people to design a new property. Oh, on this okay, great yeah. piece. Like the whole thing was salacious and horrible, but because I was Ashton McIsaac, they put on the front of the newspaper, Ashton McIsaac investigated for arson. So like I, I, and I lost $450,000 in that insurance deal because they just wouldn't pay me out and I had to settle. So shit happens. Yeah. Well, I also was going to decorate the house with Christmas decorations just for the photographer, but you know, I'll let it lie. You're right. I think your lessons are good ones here. And I knew you would speak reason to me. Uh, I, I, when, once we get off this, I'll tell you a couple of things that I've done where I was out of anger to try and make a point <laughs> to people. And I can tell you that places were decorated, but they weren't decorated with Christmas decorations. <laughs> Ashley, that's the promo clip right there for this whole podcast, by the way. <laughs> I see you. Uh, I see you sparking up there. And uh, I want. I, I just did this for you because I want you to have a sense of calm, and I know that you like to smoke pot. I, do. I don't smoke pot very much. This is probably my fourth joint this year, and you know I have it on on me all the time because I like it uh, for a, a moment to relax. But my lungs are, after having smoked for so many years, not mm -hmm. really uh, conducive to being around pot. So I like to eat it. Oh, okay. Um, but I figured for this interview, I would light a little one up. God love you. And I was going to bring up that, I, I, okay, now that I know that you eat it, because I remember the day of legalization, CBC flashes to Cape Breton, and they were going coast to coast, the first person in this town to buy legal weed, the first person in this town to go buy legal weed. And there was Ashley McIsaac, I believe the headline was, the first person in Cape Breton to buy legal cannabis. Actually, the headline that went out across the world, which I read in the South African Tribune and I read in the China Daily News and I read everywhere, was Ashley McIsaac, quote, my new dealer is the prime minister. <laughs> You're always good a for a quote. It made a lot of press, right? And, and uh, you know, I did. I, I stood in line for that because I've never done that for anything else. I don't have any Apple products. I never stood in line for Star yeah. Wars. I didn't do any of those things. And people have stood in line for my concerts for years. So I thought, okay, pot. Uh, I, for so many years, have enjoyed uh, cannabis. So I'm going to go. I happened to, I fl flew to Cape Breton and went and waited outside for many, many hours. I was the only person waiting in line for like 10 hours. So they're like, God, you're crazy. I see you can go get followed <laughs> with the neighbors out. But uh, it was it was a, a momentous day for people who have enjoyed the pleasures of cannabis and and the uh, medicinal could, effects as well. Well, th as I say, the pleasures, you know, yeah. be they medicinal or otherwise, they have uh, now made it no longer a crime to do that. Hence, this is why, and it's the first and only time there's ever been an interview where I've actually lit a joint in. Wow, we've made history here on the BKL Big Chris Live. Love it. Um, I, I heard a really funny story about you, Ashley. Now, I played the pipes, and I've only recently picked the pipes back up in the last four years. About four years ago, I started again after a long break. And, of course, you get real obsessive about the bagpipes. It's a real obsessive hobby, and I just dove straight in hard. And through 
the last four and a half years, I've taken a lot of different lessons and workshops and different things. And one of the lessons I learned was involving a story about you. And I'll recount this story now. Christmas time, a guy named Matt McIsaac. I don't know if you guys are related or not. Anyways, he's a very well-known piper. I don't, I don't believe we are, but I, I, I have an idea who he is. I think he played with Natalie McMaster for a while on Correct. the road. That's Correct. The guy, yeah. Matt McIsaac was telling a story about him being back home in Nova Scotia or Cape Breton. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. And and uh, and and they went down, him, him and his friends, they said, oh, Ashley's playing down at the pub. Let's go down and see him. And he says, great. So they went down and he says, you proceeded to get up on stage and you played Jingle Bells for about... 25 minutes solid before launching into your set and it was almost to the point where the crowd was getting semi-aggravated or or like what the hell is going on here and not true true. true. the lesson the lesson was the lesson of anticipation that didn't happen no i've never played any particular tune for 25 minutes and if (laughs) i can i i can tell you that i have on many occasions at shows, gone out when there was a, a nice grand piano, and uh, before the show, sat there and played like lounge music as people were walking in. Who they don't have a clue who I am, as they say. They still don't recognize me, and I'm on the stage, but I'm sitting at the piano, <laughs> and I'm just, you know playing. I've done that, and before shows, I I have used anticipation in a couple of ways. One of them is that I've I've played uh, a thing before or at the start of a show. Uh, at the holiday time, I wouldn't have played Jingle Bells for 25 minutes. I may have played, <laughs> I may have played 10 or 15 different carols a little oh, bit. Oh, maybe that was it. Wait, waiting to start. But typically, when it comes to anticipation in music and live performance, it's something that you don't have online. You just mm-hmm. press play, and there it is. Yeah. So you try, and, you try and build it up. And it can actually go the opposite way, too. As I've gotten older, I like to jump the gun. So that's a, a, a complete opposite way to to slam people. So somebody is introducing me on a stage and they're saying, ladies and gentlemen, he's from Cape Breton. He said this many records and blah, 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 blah. And it's going to keep going on before they can get a third of the way through. I may walk right out onto the stage and be there. And they don't even see me yet. And the audience will see me and all oh, an applause. So an early entrance will work and a delayed thing will as well. I so see. The, most, the most well-known piece of music that... I've recorded, which was from Hi, How Are You Today, that does that, does it with a slow air called, well, we call it My Cape Breton Home, on a track called Wingstock, where I start out with a piano piece for a long time, and then it builds up a little bit, and then I go into the fiddle. I opened my shows when I was out there promoting the early days of while I was recording Hi, How Are You Today with that track, and that's all about anticipation. So I get where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, anyways, it was a great lesson, and I never forgot it. Obviously, and maybe the story was exaggerated. You know how the telephone game works. But um, it, it's so funny you mentioned that song, Wingstock. I remember my... Listen, man, I was born in 1981. So I was 14, 15 years old when that record came out, right? And so, big fan, I'll just say it. And my stepbrother had the album, and he, as a joke... Uh, you know, our parents, um, my stepdad and, and my mom, uh, we were having dinner and they always like to put on like they had, remember those big old CD disc rotators with like six discs and they would rotate around and they would shuffle and they would shuffle, shuffle. Anyways, yeah. he, he, they had all this lovely piano dinner music and whatever. And he programmed it to shuffle to that song Wingstock, where it started off with all the nice light and, and airy piano work, which blended in perfectly with everything. And then all of a sudden the fiddle just comes in and the bass yeah. and the drums and 
listened to pounding, and my step my stepdad stood up. He didn't know what was going on, man. It was confessed. You know how that track came to be is is quite an interesting musical story. When I was 15 or 16 years old, I was at a, a friend's house, a guy by the name of Neil McGinnis, who was the older brother of one of my schoolmates, Rossi. And Neil had a real unique sense that, and he still does. He he grew up in a house with fiddle, but he was a uh, he was about three years older than me, and we're like '80s kids. But he was really an '80s kid, so you know, grew up with WWF and American pop culture, and he liked that. But he also liked the Celtic and traditional musics he heard. So he had his father's collection of things, and one of the things he played for me, the first one was Fogarty's Cove by Stan Rogers, and said, "Ashley, you have to listen to this music. Hmm. You don't know it." And then all of a sudden, you know. I don't know anything about playing fiddle tunes other than playing fiddle tunes. And here's this track that opens with. And I'm going, wow, that's a different way to play the fiddle. And I can see how that would work with songs. So that was one. The second one was this band called Stockton's Wing. Stockton's Wing is a band from uh, the UK that is the hippest and coolest when it came to doing edgy rock and Celtic music. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard them. And that was the track that became what I call Wingstock. Uh, I went out on the road, as I say, after high school, I decided not to finish, joined a band the first week of uh, the band performance, the last of June, they said, Ashley, we're going to start our shows now. We've rehearsed for a few days, but we want to feature you on a track. Can you do something with a band? I had never done that before. Wow. And because uh, I was just there to play mandolin and keyboards and fiddle backup in a country band. And a guy by the name of Ron Hines. I gave them this track from uh, Stockton's Wing. They learned this. I went out that night in a club called The Studio in Stephenville or Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, and owned by a guy by the name of Pete Griffith. And we'd done the show all night with Ron. He was singing the great new songs. And then they were he was walking off stage and giving me the chance. Then I was going to be featured for this tune. The band that was playing for Ron were the hottest band of Newfoundland as far as side musicians uh, since a long time. They played in the wonderful grand band. They played in multiple rock bands, a guy by the name of Paul Boomer Stamp, heavy drummer, great keyboard player named Wade Pinhorn, um, unbelievable guitar player and bass player. And I hit that fiddle tune, Wingstock, and the audience went wild. They went super wild. And we're talking young people that were out to see Ron. So, you know, 19 to 30-somethings, in Cornerbrook on a Friday night at a concert drinking that are watching Ron Hines, their star guy be back in town singing his country songs. And we hit that tune that became the opening piece for all my shows afterwards. That's why the management that uh, was at that event, because they were Ron's management yeah. decided to then say, Ashley, you need to make a rock record. This killed it. That was the inception right there. Of that everything that followed. About. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's well, and I mean, it was, and it was and it was given to me by Neil McGinnis, as I say, uh, to listen to and that I had something on a cassette I could pass over to these people say, here, what about this? Um, I thank him graciously and, and royally for his musical introductions to me. So, yeah, anticipation. 
There it is again. Yeah. Hey, now that I see you got your fiddle out there, I got a little something here too. I'm going to play a tune. I'm going to play a tune. And this is a tune that I wrote. This is an original. And this is... Uh, are you supposed to put a mask on when someone's playing a wind instrument? Yeah. Now, like they're See, I'm going to be blowing it right into your face there. Sorry, Ashley. Okay. Yeah, that's good. There we go. That's what she said. <laughs> or he, you know. Like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's a tune I'm writing for my daughter right now. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And, and what's your daughter's name? Oh, that's a secret. I can tell you what my daughter's. Oh, so, oh, so you're saying this is for the yet to be yes. delivered daughter? Yes, yes, yeah. That's right. Wow, that's very cool. So dad is writing a piece of music now. As uh, your unborn uh, child heard the bagpipes in the valley, I've I sing to her almost nightly. Um, I don't know if yes, you're, but, but, but singing is not bagpipes. That wasn't <laughs> well, she sometimes, yeah, I usually play in the basement and my wife will be upstairs in the kitchen and, and the, the sound gets through and she does, awesome. she, she kicks when she hears them. I played in, um, I played in a live stream, uh, contest for bagpipes uh, a couple of weeks ago and you know we sat there and we watched the contest back on the live stream and uh and she was my wife was just saying oh my god she's kicking like crazy and i'm like that's she's gonna be that's the name is blank's debut jig and that's uh, it awesome. so yeah so well, everybody jig. is anticipating and waiting to find out what the name is so maybe you should have a contest <laughs> have a contest on your podcast your people to to uh see that whoever can get closest to it will eventually get a tune written by me for their name. Oh my God. All right. If somebody on the comment section or you want to DM me or whatever, uh, if you have a guess as to what my baby's name is going to be for April the 11th, if you guess it correctly, Ashley McIsaac will write you a tune and it'll probably be better than my tune, guaranteed. <laughs> no, uh, no, man, that was a great tune. Thanks, man. Uh, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed hearing it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And there's, I guess it's going to be a four-part jig, but yeah. Yeah, I didn't yeah, want to bore everyone. To, I, I, now that I've said. There's a lot of ways you can go with that. You could write four parts for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've already got four parts. I just didn't have the balls to play them all. <laughs> um, hey, all that mattered was that you had the to make the, the little girl appear. So good for you. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Uh, also, I just noticed, like, even you just picking up on the riff of the tune that I wrote, uh, you even picked up the fiddle. You can play it twice as fast as I can on the fiddle. That's the thing I've always been jealous of. Pipers, there's only so fast your fingers can move on those holes. But with the fiddle, you, you can go so much faster. That's because it's it's two separate mechanisms. Where you're When you're doing tempo on a chanter or any wind instrument, you're using both hands. It's like a percussive instrument, just like mm -hmm. a piano, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's how you get speed is by this. Whereas with instruments that are strummed or bowed, this is one tempo, but then the other one is your motion of this part of your arm, right? So whether you're strumming or you're bowing, so there's a much different sense of what you use as a musician, uh, particular muscles, 
to, to make speed in one sense that that's why it's so hard to play wind instruments. That's why I'm so blown mm-hmm. away by people who play bagpipes because you say you can't play fast, but no, you can play fast. I, I'm, lots of pipers play, have played with me. I had a very well-known one named Scott Long and mm-hmm. he, he, he'd never miss a beat, you know? So there's, there's a real skill to using both hands to yeah. playing music for sure. Yeah. I will say, yeah, there are plenty of pipers out there who are better pipers than I am. They can play at those tempos, but they're much more accomplished. Like, like Matt McIsaac or like this long guy you mentioned too. Matt, Matt's, Matt's a pretty brilliant piper. Yeah. <sighs> well, I've been, uh, he has a band, he's pipe major of the band in my backyard here. And so, uh, so I've been, I, well, before the COVID and everything, I was practicing with their band and it what was a real, band, what is the band that he's a pipe major for? Uh, St. Andrew's college association. Which is St. Andrews College. Saint Andrew, is that St. Andrews out of Toronto? Uh, Aurora, yeah, just outside of Aurora. Toronto, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, Aurora. anyways, he he's you know I practiced with that guy for an entire winter, and let me tell you, that was a wake up call. <laughs> it was it was it was a good school for me to attend. I can tell you that. Well, listen, we've been chatting and being free and talking about things and going yeah. off in different directions. This is like a fun phone call. I'm happy to be part of your podcast. Thanks, if man. there's any hard hard news facts that you want to ask or you have people in a comment section uh i don't know if you're running that right now no, i can't see it yeah but, yeah so you know if you want to ask me anything let's get to the meat and potatoes of my career and then i'll say we'll finish with a tune all right. oh yes i'd love to finish with a tune all right you want a hard question i wrote a couple of ones down um ashley i want to i think about it now looking back at the real rough patch in the late 90s, you know, where, you like you say, the Globe and Mail was writing shit, and there was, you know, there was a lot of, you know, just mixed reviews on press. I look back on that now as they were trying to cancel you in a lot of ways, and, and I think a lot of the cancellations came about as a res- or they were trying to cancel you because of your lifestyle. But it's so funny because if you flash forward to 2021 and you came out flamboyantly in 2021... If anyone tried to shame you about that, they would get canceled. Isn't it interesting to see that paradigm shift? Uh, I think the reality is as a Canadian artist, as I say in the 90s, who spoke about being uh, part of a small minority of, of people, the, the notion that politics and civility uh, creeps through at a slower pace for the masses than for the minority at any point is not something that's new. It's fairly general the way I see it. So no matter what angle one has to present themselves, when they become a public figure, be it by choice or they're presented, uh, you know, without their choice, say somebody was, you know, like the Menendez brothers, like some crazy story or something that you hear about because, you know, they did something wrong they all sort of get lumped in the same kettle of fish, whether it's for a good thing or a bad thing. And to me at the time, there was never, ever, and still isn't anything wrong in the approach that I took, which was to be direct about my sexuality. (laughs) And so frankly, I don't look at it through the lens of right now, 29 years later of looking back and saying, even when there was negative or whatever connotation of printing or press about me, that I took it as a being much merit and, and still don't could have been affected by it. Yeah. And lots of times in a way that made me push farther with the, the process of trying to have people 
pay for my fiddle tunes. I mean, when it all comes down to it, that's what I do. I'm a fiddle player. So if I'm out there in the press and I'm trying to get media and I'm going, I'm also trying to talk about something I think that's a liberal idea and it's gone down a certain rabbit hole. So I'm really going to push the envelope a little farther if I want to, even if it's one I'm in control of and deciding what to do. Then anything that's been said, it's been very tough, to put it this way, to press cancel on this. (laughs) Can't keep a good man down, right? I like it. Okay, I got another one. This isn't a tough question, but uh, second to last question. Um, When was the last time that you wore a kilt? Because I always remember the back of that album, Hi, How Are You Today? And then there's you wearing wearing the kilt and you got the big uh, plaid jacket on too, looking all heavy metal. When's the last time you put a kilt on? What I have here in my hands since St. Patrick's Day is coming (laughs) is a black watch tartan kilt oh, for a leprechaun it's, it's a leprechaun's kilt it's very small but they are small you know yeah a wraparound type of some sorts of thing that they call a kilt uh which some people still just say is a dress i didn't wear them a lot no and that's why i enjoy it and i have and i did in the early uh parts of my career have rentals at points like for the photos on Hi, how are you today? And mm-hmm. also have had my own made or specifically was given one where I was part of a fashion show and I had to wear it, that sort of I thing. See. Okay. So not very often. And the reason is because I'm not a piper. Yeah, bro. <laughs> I, lo- I love I love the kilt. Yeah. You know, I love the kilts. It's not a kilt, it's kilts. So I love the kilts. And I would wear them every single day if I really thought I deserved that honor. And, you know, as a Scottish descendant, that's one side of me. I also have French. I probably have First Nations as well. Um, the The wearing of a kilt isn't a mandatory thing for me as a fiddle player. It is for you as a pipe. It is, yeah, unfortunately. And it's so funny because I'm the one who's like, can I just go do this contest in my jeans? <sighs> you know, but you're right. There is a certain tradition to it that I do appreciate. But on a- and you know what? And you know what? We all build new traditions. So when it comes to clothing, I've, I've been part of that. Uh, zeitgeist of what a kilt was when the internet started us really out there in 94 95 96 uh, i was friends with a one of the very original microsoft workers mm-hmm. so she she had her stock split like four or five times in those years right then and became one of those instant microsoft millionaires but for a while she traveled with me while hi how are you today was touring because she liked my music and she was traveling with a compadre who was a super fan mm-hmm. who loved my music and traveled everywhere with me. And her name was sunshine. So sunshine who had been a Jerry bear uh, lover, you know, she traveled as a grateful deadhead for years. She hooked onto my tour and this other lady who traveled with her was at Microsoft. One of the things she said to me was, you don't know anything about the internet, Ashley, and I'm going to do something. You can see me doing it right now. And I'm whatever I'm doing to your name, your name is going to pop up forever. You're this, so I'm going. Okay, cool, awesome, right? Thank you. <laughs> and uh, for that reason, you know, there's there's a real connection to being online. And uh, I had been in very early websites about wearing a kilt and people who are kilted in the world because of those few images that are out there. I just I love it. And if anybody ever wants to make me one and send me one, I'd always wear it. Um, but the last time is your question. And the last time would have probably been within the last four years somewhere. That's not bad. A kilt. That's a good kilt ratio. That's not bad. 
It's not you know, bad. most people can't say they've worn if they're men addressed in the last four years. For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I wear one pretty much every second weekend of the entire summer when there's no pandemic. So, you know, there's nothing more manly than a man in a dress. Yeah. Well, I worked on my calves. I mean, the rest of me. Is... You know what I'm saying? I love them like they are. They're tough. <laughs> people don't get it because when they think about how uh, the concept of a man in a dress, you just think about like drag queens, you know? Yeah. Um, the reality of all those old Roman centurion type outfits and uh, Scottish kilts and things that drape that mm -hmm. give you the freedom to move and have those, as you say, work out your calves. That's yeah. why pipers wear them so well because they're marching all the time and it's the best uh, item of clothing for marching, obviously. So, you know, yeah. good on you. Thanks buddy. <laughs> Lastly, this has nothing to do with Celtic music, jigs, reels, anything. Has anything else been? It, well, I guess not really, but uh, except for we had a little jam there, but um, be, it's just a Nova Scotia thing. Are you by chance into the mystery of Oak Island? Yeah, I am. Oh, okay, I, good. I knew, about, I knew about it before it became the great History Channel uh, series, but, yeah. you know, at one point when I was 16, this fellow who I worked with at one point later and then had to beat up because he couldn't work for me anymore because he was bad. He uh, had told me about the Sinclairs and, you know, that he, the story, and he was one, he's one of these creative types who thought it was fascinating. But I, I never really followed it from the sense of, other than I knew it was in Nova Scotia as a kid and heard about it and uh, didn't really have much connection because it's another part, you know, it's like if you live in Kingston or you live in, uh you know aurora or something like they're two different places and yeah so who knows what is you know the local lore local mystery yeah yeah right, right. Gotcha. so that's sort of what it was like as a nova scotian i was in cape breton i was far away from me i was never really down in that area yeah because it's way on the on the other side there yeah 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 but it, it's an interesting story and, and i like it and i'm into watching it on tv um Will they ever find anything? I don't know. Yeah, we can I know. hope. They've got, well, that's an answer. I guess they already have. They have found stuff. They found How some stuff. Work up there. I mean, there's there's all kinds of Mystery Channel shows about uh, Welsh people. I saw recently that were over in North America in the 1200s. Wow. So, you know, the 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 latest conversation I had with somebody who's from Nova Scotia, who's a First Nation guy, he said to me on a Facebook Messenger uh, video call here, maybe about five weeks ago that he himself knows of a particular connection in a certain area to long since past forgotten travelers who traveled there and set things up, you know, in a local story in that area. So the notion of 1497 that we all get growing up in Cabot and afterwards, and, yeah, yeah. you know, in Canada, that that's one thing, but there's obviously people that could get in boats and they could get in the water and they could travel. And why is their history Written, maybe not. Maybe only the local clans in a certain part of uh, Italy or, or Scotland or wherever. Oh, Norway, Vikings. It, yep. Talked about it amongst themselves, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm into it, but there's a lot older history than that there. And this guy was was pointing those out to me. One of the very obvious things in the in the Mi'kmaq, you know, the, the crest, the emblem that's on their flag. Mm -hmm. That's that's like a, a crescent, like an upside down hammer and sickle. There's this sort of stuff that's European and, you know, the stuff have been images that have been used since centuries and centuries and centuries, probably before the, the common knowledge. So yeah. who knows what's buried out there? I know you got a tune buried in you. I got a tune buried in me. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, Let's we do can't, it. It's hard to play together on Zoom because yeah. obviously the, the, the timing latency. issue, but 
Uh, I'll make a tune on the spot for you. And like I say, don't forget to whoever the winner is, let yep, me know. I'll write I will. a tune in their name. Okay. Here we go. This is a pleasure. You would like a pipe sounding tune? If you like, but whatever you whatever you fancy. I'll make a pipe sounding tune off the fly. All right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can. Ashley McIsaac, everybody. Thank you so much, Ashley, for being on. And uh, you're welcome back anytime, man. Listen, uh, we started out the interview and, and, and your podcast talking about how the industry is. And, and I'd just like to finish with mm-hmm. whenever you have the opportunity out there, if you're watching this, to go see a live performance. Yes. Things are changing. People are getting vaccines. Most people in Canada are wearing masks. Uh, when the opportunity arises, don't be scared to get back out to those local bars and to support uh, the venues. I know you all want to go out and enjoy yourselves. Musicians want to and need to perform for you. Couldn't have said it better, Ashley. And I'm looking forward to like everything that comes. I hope there's a boom for live entertainment for, for everyone involved. Well, you know, at the very least, when the guy shows up there today to sell your house, make sure <laughs> that you're playing a good tune. Okay. <laughs> Ashley McIsaac, you're a gem. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. Had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.